Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Accidentally firing a nuclear-capable missile into nuclear-armed Pakistan. Wait, what? Wow. Yeah, so... <laughs> apparently, it's that easy to launch, accidentally launch a nuclear... <laughs> right? It gets better. So on March 9th, a, an, an Indian nuclear-capable missile was fired from the Indian Air Force Base in the city of Sursa into the Pakistani city of Mian Chanu, over 170 miles away. No casualties were reported. India has, has called it a technical malfunction. And this week, the Indian Air Force has concluded an investigation where a court of inquiry was set up to establish the facts of the case, including fixing responsibility for the incident. And they found that deviation from the standard operating procedures by three officers led to the accidental, accidental firing of a nuclear armed missile into another country. Good God. Well, that's, uh, that's embarrassing for India as a country. It, it, it begs the question. Okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> it obviously wasn't armed, right? There was no nuclear detonation. That would have been pretty crazy. Um, and my understanding is, is that nuclear missiles can be disarmed in flight as well by the firing. Hopefully, if their technology is up to speed, you can disarm them. I, I'm pretty sure the U.S. can do that. But that's not the point. The point is, two points, I guess. The first is, as far as I know, no country has a situation where anyone has unilateral ability to fire a freaking nuclear missile at another country. <laughs> you have to have multiple people who all like agree simultaneously, turn codes, get, turn keys, all that kind of stuff, right? There's fail safes in place <laughs> to specifically avoid an incident like this. Why? Well, well, what would the response be? Thank God cooler heads prevailed in Pakistan. In Pakistan, another nuclear-armed country. So you're a nuclear-armed country. Some other nuclear-armed country is firing a nuclear-armed missile at one of your cities. And you have the, the, the ability and coolness of head to not respond to that by firing a nuclear missile back or more. All I have to say is, Thank God that cool heads prevailed in Pakistan because that could have gotten really stupid. Well, really and on top of that, Alex, props to them uh, not pulling what I would think the U.S. would do and try to blame it on somebody else, like you know, some sort of 
quote unquote like foreign hack or some bullshit. India was just like, nope, uh, we just made a stupid. That was on us. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, first of all, I don't understand. I mean, it says standard deviation, a deviation from standard operating procedures. <laughs> that had to be one hell of a deviation. If there's three the officers deviation. involved, like the deviation is they're all in the fucking nuclear silo smoking crack or something. <laughs> I don't know. They're I having mean, a party. They accidentally hit the big red button. That's well, let's let's all turn our keys simultaneously, verify the codes, and hit the button. Let's just see what happens. Does this actually wow. work? Nobody knows. We haven't actually gone all the way. I mean, what would the United States response to something like that be? China fires oh, a nuclear-armed missile at a United States city. What happens? Or imagine if we accidentally launched one. We would be like, oh, the, the Russians did it. No. So Alex, I would you're, you're I would assuming... hope I would hope we would be on the phone with their president immediately and be like, yo, 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 this is not real. You're you're assuming that they have that kind of protocol in place to begin with. Yeah, I am assuming that is correct. I, I, I'm just hopeful that that is correct. Like we're talking well, about giving, nuclear weapons. Benefit of the doubt, I would say. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, we are talking about Pakistan. It it might not be quite as stringent as uh, as our fail-safe kinds of uh, uh, protocols. It was India that launched the missile on accident. That, by the way, if you're filtering in here, it was India that accidentally launched a nuclear missile into a Pakistani city. It wasn't armed. There was no nuclear detonation, but it did happen, apparently. Uh, again, uh, it just pro- it just goes goes further to 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 say to my point that you know the the prolifer- proliferation of nuclear arms in the world into hands that are incompetent is um, frightening to say the least. Well Crazy. said. I want to welcome up Hotep Jesus. Good morning, dude. Yo, good morning, bro. I you know I mean I saw the uh. The topic it said progressive, and I was just triggered. I'm like, progressives? Is progressives in Bitcoin? Oh hell no! So I had to pop in and see what the hell was going on. What's up, fellas? Fucking fantastic! Thanks for showing up. Glad you came, uh, Jacob. Well done on the title, sir. <laughs> hey, no credit to me. It's actually the title of Jason's book. Um, so he'll be coming on in about I don't know 50 minutes or so, and um, he he started a Kickstarter campaign for this book called uh, the Progressive. Progressive's case for Bitcoin, and um, yeah, so we're going to be talking to him about that. So hang out and yeah, ask him some questions about it. It's going to be pretty good. How how'd you guys get on the nuclear warhead topic and all of that? Okay, so what we do every day is one Dude, of my crew. <laughs> well, no, I I just found this particular headline to be fascinating. So one of our crew, his name's uh, Rustin, down there in the audience. He he's one of our researchers. He puts together a bunch of topics in the morning. Um, and I go through them and I, and I look at what's interesting. Mostly we talk about things that pertain directly to Bitcoin every now and then there's something as wacky as this, that we just start the show with. We'll usually discuss weird news items and things that pertain to Bitcoin for the first hour or so of the show. And then the second hour we usually talk about, uh, we'll have some kind of guest that comes in. Everything pertains to Bitcoin. What, What are you talking about? 
Yeah, if you're good enough, you can you can somehow weave it in, right? So how does India accidentally firing a nuclear? I can I can tell you I can Pakistan. tell you how that fucking relates to Bitcoin. If Go, we were Peter. in a Bitcoin hybridization world, they wouldn't have the fucking money to buy the goddamn missiles. Anybody have a rebuttal to that? Or you could say that the, the the Swift movement was like a pretty comparative example of just how like putting that kind of power and, and authority and responsibility in the hands of humans just is not very well handled. Like whether it's warheads or financial capability. You think South Park is going to do a uh, uh, a little bit on this? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> are you kidding me how can they possibly pass this up as a this is i mean yeah don't get big enough i bet rick and morty does something too in the future all right i tell you what this is and 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 to build on what peter just said um, this is another headline, and the, we'll weave all this together here in a minute. But 9,404 crypto mining devices have been seized by the Iranian authorities since March. According to reports, many of the seized crypto mining rigs were operating in public locations that receive free or heavily subsidized electricity, such as schools and mosques. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So, so the point there is, in my opinion, this is what Bitcoin does. Bitcoin punishes capital misallocations and it rewards efficient capital allocations. Explain to me how I'm wrong by that. Mike, what do you think? Oh, I wasn't going to chime in on that. I wasn't going to tell you you were wrong on anything. There was a, uh, I wanted to add, there's another little bit that was very interesting to that story. Um, they were busting Chinese companies for illegally mining Bitcoin under the guise of their business operations. <laughs> so the Chinese owned 7-Elevens or whatever the hell they are. They're, they're mining Bitcoin as well. Yeah, if that doesn't tell you something that they're trying to like, you know, ban it from, the, from their own borders as far as like mining. But then they're going to use the energy of other countries to try and mine Bitcoin. Like that tells you something. It tells you a lot, in my opinion. But is that the government, or is that just Chinese individuals and corporations? Does it matter? Yeah. Not really. Aren't really they matters. one and the same? No, are they're you, not the are same. Are you the same as your not United States same. government? <laughs> well, because, like, well, the real question... I'm not living in China, so, be, like, if, you know, if it's Chinese, a little different. If Chinese government officials own any of those companies. If, if China's banning mining, and you're a Chinese person, and you want to mine Bitcoin... Wouldn't you just mine it in another country? Yes. Or if you're a Chinese official, like I just said, yeah. Or, but, is or, it, but, but the individual you were talking about, is it confirmed that that was a Chinese official? No, oh, no I don't think so. That's my own speculation. Now, here's, here's the thing. I think Hotep's right. So, like, okay, what a lot of people who have not been outside the United States do not understand this thing called the Chinese diaspora. So if you go around the world in almost... It, well, I shouldn't say in almost any, but in many countries, you will find little shops, little grocery stores or 7-Elevens or, or whatever, just little stores that are owned by Chinese people. Like they go all over the world and they, for whatever reason, Chinese and Koreans own a lot of these little stores. So it does not really surprise me to hear that maybe they're operating one, some little store and in the back, they've got some Bitcoin miners running. I mean, 
really that I think that's kind of the idea, right? Is completely decentralized. Um, completely decentralized. That's that's the reason why you can't really kill it. Well, and it's, it's pretty cool that like the Chinese people are thinking for themselves and doing better than, in my opinion, a lot of the Americans. Like they're seeing the value of Bitcoin and they're mining it on their own inside these jurisdictions, which are still trying to prevent people from being able to mine it. Well, and, and especially if your electricity is free. <laughs> yeah, because I, I have some friends that are uh, that are partial, like, just a few steps away from mainland Chinese heritage. And, like, they all still, like, buy into a lot of the, you know, China's fantastic and great stuff. But, like, they and they, and they listen to the whole, like, it's been banned, so they think it's bad kind of narrative, too. You know, while we've got Hotep here, Hotep, if, if, am I correct in understanding you went on Joe Rogan one time? Uh, twice. That you? Twice. That's twice, what I yeah. thought. I thought I had seen you on there. Very cool. Yeah, you, uh, you know what? I will say this. I, 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 I mean, I don't know you very well, and, and I'm, I'd like to get to know you better. But, like, uh, it, it's pretty clear you have different, uh, shall we say, different views than most people. Is that fair? Um, I think that's one way to put it. I would say that there's nuance to a lot of conversations and I like to cover all sides of an argument, right? So like, like for example, the previous argument about CCP officials mining, right? Could it be CCP officials mining? Sure, but it might not be, right? And I want to be clear, especially if you have a large audience, that we get them all sides of the thing and let them do their own thinking on their own. I just want people to think. That's all I do. Yeah, I love that, man. That's but, that's but yeah, but I mean, yeah. Um, people do say like I have different opinions. I usually say is like, no, nah, I just maybe thought about something um outside of the main th- mainstream or outside of the group think that you might not have thought about, but I don't know if it's it's different, right? Like it could be. I don't know. I, I just I just feel like there's a lot of sides to arguments. There's a lot of sides to different things, and sometimes you know people have an agenda that they want to push, so they might think like me, but they won't say it. You know what I mean? Because everybody's got oh their own yeah agenda to push. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. So absolutely, it's like, man. am I different or am I just saying? What people don't okay, want. Okay. Well, well, this is what I'm hearing. You lo- you want the truth. You're looking for the truth. You're a seeker of truth. You believe in critical thinking. You practice critical thinking in in a way um, that is very different. <laughs> I find a lot of people who are who are into Bitcoin are are follow the kind of the same pattern. Looking for truth, seeking the truth. Critical thinkers have no problem arguing different sides or looking at things from all perspectives to finally arrive at the truth. Versus just pushing a propaganda line. And I do like that. Yeah, I'm all about the truth. I want the truth to get out there. Um, even if it's ugly, you know, um, it still needs to be out there. And I think the the harder it is to deal with the truth, the more we need to move into it. Because that's the thing that's going to help us develop and evolve. It's lying to yourself mm. that is going to exasperate the problem. Like the student loan situation. People mm-hmm. lying to themselves about what the real cause is and putting band-aids on this thing, which is making the problem worse. No, let's tell the truth. 
get the government out of it, and then maybe we can solve this problem. Damn, that, I love yeah. that. Well, that's mm, like go ahead, issue, Sean. That's the issue that we've been seeing a lot lately, right? Is any, and especially in COVID, if you try to ask any questions, then there's no truth that can be found. You just get stopped as soon as you start asking questions. And the same thing, inflation. Every time there's more inflation, there's a new there's a new article. Oh, inflation's good for us now. Uh, stop stop asking like why we're having inflation. So all these questions that we're getting asked uh, that we want to ask are are kind of being cut short because because there are some people that are that's their job to stop us from finding the truth. Yeah, and that's sad. And what you said is so on point. Like, they're like, inflation is good for you. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it comes back to the fact that most people are just uninformed and uninformed because not doing any exploration. Please excuse me, I'm out of breath because I'm working out at the same time I'm doing this. Um, but also when you talk about the, the jabby jib, right? It's funny because um, for years, um, hoteps have been telling people about all of the jabs, you know, not just the mRNA thing that's come out now, but all of them and some of the deleterious effects that's been having uh, on people, um, such as autoimmune diseases. And a lot of people were resistant. But then the whole situation happened last year, and now everybody's like, oh, I'm questioning this thing now. And it's just like, but I was the guy that was different before, but now I'm not different. I'm just in a line with people catching up to the information. I mean, 2018, mm-hmm. um, I was showing people the uh, Stanley Plotkin de- deposition and what he was talking about with those, those needle operations, right? Those needle procedures. And um, the information has been out there for years. The people in Idaho, people in Idaho knows about, know about this. That's why they were moving out of California because they didn't want mandates on their kids. And they were doing this before the pandemic, right? Yep. So, so, you know, it's like the truth is there, but are you willing to question what you've been taught all your life? But that's kind of hard uh, for most people. Yeah, hell yeah. So f- two things. First of all, this episode is now definitely going to get flagged on Spotify. Nah, I, <laughs> and, I, and I don't care. And, and, and I don't care. Just so you know, Hotep, that's fine. Like they do flag some of our episodes and you know what? Fuck them. I don't care. Um, second I don't of all, will, cause I used some coded language, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty good. No. And, and well, here's the thing. We've art, we've had episodes that have gotten flagged before and I'm fine with all that. Um, but yeah, totally, totally agree, man. Like there, there's so much evidence out there that, uh, for example, like Gates was pushing this program in, in Africa to test some, I don't know, some fucking vaccine that they had. And it turns out they, they created this huge pandemic and fucked a lot of kids up with that. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is my obviously non-doctor language explaining it. This is my, my understanding. Um, the other the other side of that is, is like you're you know like yeah you're saying you're way early, the, with the when you're way early and you're a lone wolf in the wilderness pointing out the truth, what do they do? They label label you as a conspiracy theorist. You know, it turns out a lot of conspiracy theorists are actually right, and they're just early. They're, they they catch on to things way before a lot of people. And I'm not sitting here telling you that like everybody who's got some bizarre 
theory is right. I'm just saying, you know, like Hotep said, think for yourself, man. You know, the hard, the hard part is like when you have to question everything, it's just like the world that you've been born into and that you live in is very automated already. So then you have to start asking questions on every little thing. And it's like you have to re sometimes you feel like it's just not worth it because you feel like you have to reinvent the wheel, you know, and that's where I think a lot of people just want to live this automated life and they don't want to have to go against the grain because it's just something that they're not mm. willing to try out. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's doing what's hard. It's doing what's hard. And and like Hotep said something a couple minutes ago where he's like, you know, it's it's it is difficult. And when when he was talking about that, you go through even if it's painful, like the truth sometimes it is painful, but would you rather know and you can move through it? Like it just reminded me of Stoic philosophy big time. The obstacle is the way. Like that's how you grow, that's how you learn, that's how you become a better person. You need to seek the discomfort, you seek the the uncomfortable path, man. Yeah, you know, for an intellectual, you know, I uh, came with this phrase. I said, question everything and believe nothing. It is the moment that you start to believe something without the ability to move that you begin to intellectually die. And I'm a person who fears death. I want to live forever, right? I want to preserve my youth. And the only way to do that is to have this flexibility of mind where, okay, I see something today. But I also understand that facts are dated. You know, what was true 20 years ago is not true today because new evidence comes to the surface. So if people take this idea of I should believe nothing, you always stay in a state of perpetual learning. And that is what's going to help people navigate this world because they'll see something and they'll go, wait, question everything, believe nothing. So they have to question the first thing that they come across. And if we teach children this at a very young age, as I teach my children, they will always be, uh, they'll all have a built-in defense mechanism to some of the mainstream propaganda because they'll know, okay, I have to question this, even though this comes from an alleged authority. Yeah, it's called discernment, right? This is a skill that I think human beings have lost greatly in, in our current generations is the ability to look at information that's being thrown at you and to discern the truth. But the only way you, you, you get that ability is by critical thinking and extra it's got to exercise. It's like a muscle. If you don't exercise that discernment muscle, it atrophies and it becomes weak. And then you're unable to determine what's true. And then you fall for scams and you get people telling you stuff that is not in your best interest, but it's in their best interest. Who benefited the most from all those vaccine sales? I should ask. Cooey Probably uh, Pfizer and Moderna, right? <laughs> Probably. And who else? You know, I saw, I, I've seen continuously all of these uh, things come up where somehow magically these politicians like that chick, what's her name down there in New Zealand, magically are, are incredibly wealthy in the tens and tens of millions of dollars. All of a sudden. Yeah. Like how'd that, how'd that happen? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think also, too, is um, whoever's pulling the strings behind the curtain, they um, – because they never do anything for one reason. It's never just for money. It's never just for power. It's always for multiple reasons. And one thing is they uh, first got to test this, right? They got a large test group population 
for their experiment, right? So they got that information. They also got the response from people, right? How are people oh, going yeah. to respond to this? Yeah, so they two know different kinds next- of tests, right? Yeah. So the next time they try to pull the jig, they know how people are going to respond and their think tanks have already created rebuttals for their progressives to spew and spat at you uh, in response next time this thing rears its head. And it's probably going to pop up 10, 20 years from now because, you know, this generation moves on and forgets and the next generation comes up with their ignorance, da 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 Because you got to remember, this same thing happened in 1976 with the Spanish flu where they said it was going to be a huge pandemic. They issued a whole such and such. Come to find out it was a big nothing burger, right? And that's fully documented. But because that was, I was born in 1980, that was 1976. I didn't know anything about that until I did the research, right? So it's like we have this short memory and they take advantage of that. But every time they pull this, they get the data. How do people respond? How do people act? Who are the players? Who are the big players? Is it Andrew Tate? Do we got to get rid of him? Do we got to get rid of Alex Jones? Do we got to get rid of Trump? And how do these people pop up? So there's a lot of data that they're collecting um, outside of um, just the scientific data. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I agree with that. I think you're right. I think you're 100% right on with that. I honestly think they... Listen, they were. I, I think they were um, even surprised at how far they could push everyone. I, I mean, let's go back, you know, sort of to the beginning two years ago, um, how quickly they were able to get everyone on board on this. Um, yes, there were the silent sort of majority that were quickly quelled. Any narrative that went, went against it um, was quickly um, taken off of all social media. And now you see YouTube now walking back, walking back all of those definitions that got people kicked off is two years later. Now they're starting to ask questions. The questions should have been asked in the beginning. You know, how, how is it possible we came up with a vaccine for this so quickly? Um, never mind. Why are we making a vaccine that has a 99.9 something percent survival rate? But Hotep is right on point. What they learned is we, we know now that half the population will get in line and, and, and do this. All right. They know right now how many people will jump in and and now they just got to work on everyone else, everyone else. Okay, how do we get, you know, they're changing definitions. They're changing definitions of what herd immunity was. They changed definitions of what a vaccine is. No, at this point, I don't I don't think their their view is how do we get everyone else? I think at this point, their view is, okay. how do we weaponize this information? How do we take the people that we know we can scare into doing whatever we want to hate the others enough to, to get them to um, coalesce around an idea. I think that's the direction next. Tomer, what do you think, man? Oh, hi, good morning. I, I think one of the interesting things about you conduct these experiments, this, they're not easy to repeat. Uh, the, the experiment has an effect. So while I'm generally in overwhelming agreement with everything that's been said here, I, I think in conducting the experiment to see how many people are asleep, they may have woken up a few people. Uh, and a few oh, no doubt. No doubt. Tons and tons and tons of people now are like, yo, I used to believe you guys, but now I think you're full of shit. A lot of people fall into that category now. I would, I think yeah. that like all the healthcare kind of agencies have the lowest level of credibility in my lifetime that I can think of. Like, yeah, I, I think why, this was more than an experiment. Um, to see what they could do again. It was an experiment to see what they could do, I think. And it came at a cost. It came at a cost to us. I don't want to 
but I think it's come at a significant cost to them, which is the as you're saying, the trust in all these institutions, the medical community, the education, politicians, our own militaries has been massively damaged. I've seen, I've, I've seen charts, there's, um, I, I, I didn't know we'd be discussing this or I would have gone and researched them, but we had it in a number of our publications at SWAN where you can just see over time for as long as these trust measures, I think it's, it's um, what's the, there's a, there's a survey firm that for a decade has been researching trust in various institutions. And, and recently they've started measuring it in other things like internet news sources and other things like that. But the thing is dropping like a stone and everything is at an all time low and things that used to have very, very high levels of trust, like doctors, you know, doctors used to have like, yeah. I think it was not 80 or close to 90% trust of the population at large. These things have fallen to well below 50%. Yeah. And, and, and the damage that's been done to them. I mean, exactly. The damage done to right. the medical profession is amazing. Like if you, and you had all these doctors who knew that what they were doing was wrong, but because they wanted to keep their job, they wanted to keep their license, their medical license, and they want to continue to getting paid they were willing to shut up and not speak up about what was happening. So because of that, their entire profession has been, I don't want to say irreparably damaged, but the, 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 it's been damaged for a long time to come. Yeah. Well, you guys got to also think about, so I, I lived the last two years in Spain and the, the European response to it was, was, was not like the American response, right? Most I mean, you have the progressives, right? But the Europeans were more just like, let's just get in line and do exactly what the government tells us to do. I mean, not all Europeans, obviously, but I remember going out and telling people that I'm not vaccinated, right? And people just couldn't believe it. Like, what? What, what are you doing? Why not? You got to You like you got to follow along. This is just. Are you going to kill your grandma? All this type of stuff. And obviously, obviously, in the United States, there's plenty of people that act the same way. But at least there was more people that, that I could talk to in the U.S. that weren't that way. But in, in Spain, and I would imagine in most of Europe, you know, most of Western Europe, the response was very similar where it was like, if the government says it, then it's then it's true. And, and not everyone's like that. I don't want to put everyone in the same picture, but a lot of the people were, were in that boat more so, I would say, in Europe than they were in the U.S., yeah, I, what I call what we're dealing with today is uh, digital Bolshevism. Bolshevism thrived off of intimidation, creating fear and terror. If you look at, uh, for example, Stalin, and his terror regime, right? Today, because, you know, the Bolsheviks, they weren't in, 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 uh, interested in having intellectual arguments. No, they just kicked your ass, right? And that's what's happening today, where if you say the wrong thing online, granted, I would say 50% of the people trying to cancel you aren't people, they're probably bot farms. But the other 50% are people manipulated by the bot farms, thinking that is this is the right thing to do. But it is using, because Bolshevism means majority uh, in Russian, but using the supposed majority to intimidate you into not speaking out and not telling the truth. And that, I believe, is something that they're trying to master is intimidation 100%. to hush yeah. people up. 100% the, silent, agree. The, the silent majority, basically, right? 
Well, they, they part well, of it is they want majority, they right? want to make you yeah, believe yeah. you're part of the minority. That's the thing that right, they're trying right. to make you believe. Now, here's here's the truth is probably closer to the majority don't think like they like they say the majority do. Like that's the that's the tactic you notice almost every single fucking time. Every time they're like most people believe this or. And they always act like they're a spokesperson for the vastness of humanity, which is a joke. Um, oh, it just keeps me so riled up. I mean, we, this is uh, straight out of Orwell, 1984, not to be too cliche, but it's, it, I see it in myself where I censor myself. And the funny thing is Orwell is right because when you censor your mouth, you censor your mind. And I find myself not being able to fully think through thoughts because I want to tweet them or I want to share them. I'm like, wait, I can't do that. And it actually stunts uh, my thinking process. You know what I mean? Yeah. So was on point with that. And, and, you know, here's the thing. My belief is, is that this, this has been building up for decades. This has been going on for decades. The whole politically correct terminology like it's not nice to say this don't say that we don't you know what I, I i hear this a lot from the generation that came right before me they're like don't talk about spirituality don't talk about politics because you risk risk offending people so what did that cause it caused an entire generation of people my generation to just shut up about that stuff well guess what there are certain people who are never going to shut up like marxists and communists and people who want to fucking take over your countries and your societies with their psychotic belief systems, they're not going to shut up. They're just going to get you to shut up. Dude, and what I'm we need, what we need is an entire generation of strong men willing to stand the fuck up, stand up people, say what's right. Say what you know in your heart is right. Dude, I'm so glad you said that because it's something I recently noticed Unfortunately, it was recently. But that thing, you can't talk about politics at the dinner table. Then you wonder why you're dominated by politics throughout your community. Because you can't even talk about it with your mom and dad. You can't talk about your cousin. I remember one time I went yep. to a family gathering and my god sister comes over. She goes, don't you start today. And I'm like, why, why do I have to be that guy? And it's like, we can't have these conversations. So what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about entertainment and Hollywood and movies and you well, want what's, to gossip? Yeah, what's more, what's more important? The, what the fucking Kardashians are doing or, what, or what's being constructed to put you into real-time slavery? Yeah, and, and we're black, so, you know, we're always complaining about the evil white man. But in the meantime, you're, 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 you're discussing all the things that are the machination of this so-called evil white man that don't matter in your life, but you're shunning all the things that we should discuss, right? And then you're also shutting down the other side of the table. You don't want to talk about conservatism. You don't want to talk about republicanism. And again, I don't know who started this. I'm trying to find out who started this mess about you can't talk about politics at the dinner table. But that is terrible. People, please start talking yeah. about politics at the dinner table in every chance you get. Right now, it's probably one of the most important subjects. I mean, okay, so to be clear, this is not a political show. I know it feels that way sometimes because I'm pretty yeah, but but Alex, this is the same this is the same thing that we encounter when we talk about Bitcoin, when we talk about money, when we talk about you know what's really going on in the world with with economies. And you know a lot of this a lot of this this politics that that people don't talk about um, or religion that people don't talk about, you know is 
well, not religion, but politics is really tied to, you know, money. It's tied to value. It's tied to who's getting what. And, yeah. and Bitcoin kind of is, is our, uh, our way of saying, well, you know what? I, I don't, this is my freedom of speech and my speech is where I, I don't want to be part of that system anymore. And that's what I'm saying. And I'm saying it with my pocketbook. Yeah. So like, <clears throat> The entire fiat system is constructed in a way to privilege a group of people, and it's not you. <laughs> and unless you're in that tiny, tiny, tiny slice of the population that gets immediate access to the money that's printed, and right now the political class, they're just printing literally fucking trillions of dollars and spending it on whatever the fuck they want. And I guarantee you, a lot of that money is flowing back to them some way, somehow. You know, I'm just going to jump in here. Thanks, Alex, for having me on stage. Appreciate it, Swan. Um, I'm just going to have one really, really quick and simple comment to make. Uh, and it reflects a view that I've had, let's say, let's say beginning of 20, 2019, but much, much earlier than that. And you can check my record to make sure that I've been consistent for the last three, three, four plus years. Um, and that sentence is the following. Uh, I usually get up and talk about Bitcoin, but I'm just going to say one sentence and I'm just going to peace, okay? Uh, just a reminder for everybody on stage and everybody listening in this room that there is absolutely no medical intervention that is strictly mandatory. I'm going to say that one more time. There is no medical intervention that is strictly mandatory uh and it's super important to realize that it might not feel like that on the surface can you, it might can you not feel like that when yeah, you, can't, yeah, you can't yeah. peace out after that we got questions yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly can you elaborate that yeah so in terms of hills to die on there's a lot of doctors that were you know taking flack for for speaking their mind uh some of us even received letters from our licensing bodies about misinformation based on random complaints from the public. Uh, and what what's important to realize that is that same thing when it comes to free speech is a hill that, you know, you don't really want to die on a hill, but if there was a hill to die on, free speech would be one of them. Freedom in general would be another one. Informed consent would be another one. Bodily autonomy would be another one. Uh, so when it comes to my message and my voice on these things, it's, it's a, if somebody asks me, Hey, are you willing to die on this Hill? I know that if it ever came down to the Supreme court, if it ever came down to the, to, to the validity of my license, I know that informed consent and protecting patient autonomy is a Hill that I could die on, but it's likely not one that I would lose if I ever fought it all the way. Well, let, let me ask you this. What about kids when they go back to school and the school is saying, hey, these are mandatory vaccines? Isn't that compulsory? Yeah, so when, when schools, depending on what jurisdiction, if you're in Canada or the United States, they can say it's mandatory. Uh, but that usually what will happen is institutions, especially ones that aren't like legal authority, they will say things like compulsory, mandatory, or required 
but that's usually only for them to go to that school. So as difficult it may be to pull your kid from a school that's saying you have to mask up your kid for years and years, you might as well home homeschool them. You know what I mean? It's not easy, but you know, these, these, these institutions, not only are they incorrect medically uh, and unscientific when it comes to these mandates, um, they, uh, they will be proven wrong in the, in the in the court of low time preference yeah it's already happening already happening so i want to clarify something um just because i want to make sure people understand when i say i said a little while ago this show is not political right after i ranted and said you need to stand up and speak for what's right <laughs> so some people are like in their mind they're like what the hell what are you trying to say okay this is what i'm trying to say is this show is sponsored by swan bitcoin therefore I am not speaking as a representative of Swan when I talk about this stuff. This is purely my opinion. When I say it's not political, I'm not interested in politics insofar as politics is concerned. Every, every political platform, most politicians today have some kind of agenda. So yes, some of them are their agenda is they actually do want to serve the people and they do take their oath to the Constitution seriously. They do want to do good things. But there's a whole shit ton of them that aren't like that. And what I'm interested in and so it's clear is I'm interested in freedom. I'm interested in um, the protection of my, my labor and my energy. I don't like it being stolen. I don't like being a modern slave. I don't like any of that shit. And uh, this idea that some other humans have that they think that it's their job to tell you what to do and how to live your life and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, I'm not all about that either. So that crosses over into political discussion sometimes, Tomer. You know, like there are some things you cannot avoid. You cannot avoid philosophy as much as you try to. You have a view of how things really are and what they really are. And you can't avoid politics, politics being a branch of philosophy that talks about how we deal with each other in a civilization. And <laughs> you can avoid talking about the political system but you can't avoid talking about politics. And I, I think this is where Bitcoin is a philosophy that says there should be rules without rulers. Well, that's political. <laughs> like you've got the word rulers in there, right? And it's a set of rules that, <laughs> that nobody can violate that those who stud study and, uh, and approve of, approve of for philosophical reasons. The list of reasons you just stated, freedom related, self-determination related own the ability to direct your energy and keep the results of your efforts as property. So it's hard to avoid uh, pol politics in any of these yeah. discussions about any of these things. Well, there's a difference between discussing part politics and partisanship, right? So what I'm trying to say is we're not picking a side here. My side is freedom. Like that's the lens. Like I don't give a shit if you're red, blue, green, yellow, purple, what side of the political, political spectrum you claim to represent if you do things that are anti-freedom you're probably not my friend if you do things that are pro-freedom then we can be friends i mean we could maybe be friends either way it just depends on what your motives are and if whether you're an evil bastard or not and good morning good morning guys yeah i would say i, I just wanted to add on for uh for the good doctor's uh comment and that was that in texas at least uh, a lot of people don't know about it, but, you know, they have the school immunizations and everything that you're supposed to get. It's like a whole laundry list of stuff you're supposed to, you know, get to be able to be enrolled in school. But you can actually, like, 
get exempted from that stuff, even based on like religious beliefs. You can have it like medical intervention, like uh, medical contradictions. Um, there's like different reasons. There's like three or four different reasons that you can, uh, you know, like opt out. And then they say that they'll still like exclude your child from school if you like during an epidemic or an emergency. So they still would have excluded the kids for like COVID or whatever. But, you know, technically speaking, like, yeah, like it's not mandatory. And if there's anybody, if there's anybody here in Canada that has any, let's just say, has any problems going forward uh, in their life because of all of these mandates, I've kept a clear voice for the last four years. You guys come to me first. Just Google me. Well, all right then. That was quite a vigorous segment. Let's hey, Dr. Some... Dawes, check your DMs, man. You, <laughs> you know, Let's... Alex, just to, just to, just to, just one thing to add to this. It's it's interesting that <clears throat> that we're talking about truth and freedom, you know, and and this relationship between politics, religion, money, and and truth and freedom. And of course, you know, there's the there's the, the the quote, you know, that the truth will set you free, which which kind of, you know, encompasses this entire this entire conversation. And it's it's just super interesting to me. And that's the thing that has attracted me to to Bitcoin more than anything else is is the fact that that the, that Bitcoiners seek the truth and and that toxicity is is not um, allowing information to be free. Well said, sir. Well, let's hit some announcements and we'll keep rolling here. So you are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome if you've never been here before. We do talk about Bitcoin. Today's conversation ranged quite widely. However, at the core tenant of a lot of people who are interested in Bitcoin, people are interested in protecting the, their labor. They're, they're interested in protecting the fruits of their labor. That's why they're interested in Bitcoin. And a lot of people are interested in freedom. It kind of, it cross intersects. It's a great place to learn about Bitcoin. We don't always take this kind of direction in our discussion. Um, some days we just do Bitcoin beginner Q&A. So if you want to come in here and you want to learn, you're welcome to do that. Um, we also cover news items. It's a great place for your morning news and a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds of Bitcoin. You just drop in here randomly and talk about what's going on. So we do this live every day on Twitter Spaces. Uh, if you can't catch the live show, you can catch the podcast if you want to. Up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcast. Throw myself or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. One cool thing coming up is the Pacific Bitcoin Conference in November 10th and 11th in Santa Monica, California. Brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Pacific Bitcoin is deeply dedicated to helping more Bitcoiners achieve financial freedom with Bitcoin and have a great time along the way. Ticket prices are going up tomorrow. I, wait, no. Today. At some point today. So if you haven't done so already, use promo code CAFE for 10% off. Um, definitely going to be a great time. Love to meet you there. I, I will also, by the way, be at Big Block Boom. I'll show up there tomorrow afternoon. We're going to be doing the show, I believe, live on Saturday. At, at their request, we're going to be participating in the HODL, raising funds for HODL Knots legal defense against <laughs> you-know-who um, on Saturday. Hope to see you there. If you're going to BitBlock Boom, I think what we're going to do as Cafe Bitcoiners is we're going to circle up at the Friday evening uh, open bar 
hang out and then maybe go do something later, whatever. I don't know. We'll see. Make sure you connect with me. If you're a cafe Bitcoin or you're going, shoot me DM. Would love to meet you in person. I want to go back to Hotep. I got, I got, I got some, something. I want to start some, some, some stuff. All right. What do you got, uh, man? So I, uh, been playing with this idea as I do my research. First of all, um, Marx was right about a lot. Terrible with solutions. We all know that. Uh, however, communism, economic communism, specifically, is terrible. But also, there's capitalism, then there's modern capitalism. And modern capital capitalism is bad, too. And I'm saying this as someone who practices modern capitalism. And when I speak about modern capitalism, I'm talking about, obviously, usury. And I'm also talking about marketing and advertising, two things that had not existed in um, early Europe. It was, in fact, uh, haram. It was forbidden. You couldn't advertise. If you had a bread guy, everybody went to one bread guy. Competition was not allowed. You had to go do something else with your life. So this is something that I'm thinking about now, playing with, still doing research, but I don't like modern capitalism. I don't like advertising, although I am a marketer and brander and teach it and find it as a necessity. But I can also understand how something could be relevant to our lives now, but still be evil, like guns. I think we should all be armed, but guns are bad, right? Like two things can be true at the same time, right? But um, that's just a, a thought. Maybe you guys want to riff off that. I don't know, but I yeah, have I, I'd like to I'd like to dive deeper into that. So your definition of modern capitalism is to, is is it consists of two? There are two things, two parts of it that make it modern capitalism. Number one is usury. The other is marketing. Marketing, advertising, and also um, I would say uh, this fractional reserve banking concept that um, popped up in um, France. Um, under John Law, um, and then spread throughout the Western world, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like probably the other part of it, how banks are operated. Yeah. Tomer. Yeah, I, I would. I, so I certainly think when you look back at the dawn of the, the slow rise of capitalism, it wasn't this sudden thing. It was really the, the discovery of industrialization which allowed for, which is when economics started to be studied. Adam Smith, the first economist, came up with this theory of supply and demand and specialization of labor when he visited a pin factory, apparently, and he saw how different, how the division of labor separated all this thing, all this stuff out. And that was the beginning of industrialization, which led to a lot of, um, a lot of modern capitalism in which we do everything for money. <laughs> because if you, we, we almost can't even imagine a time when you would do something with somebody not for money. Every, every transaction that we deal with, we label as something where money changes hands, where one party is supplying and another party is receiving return. But if you think about this conversation here, nobody's really paying anybody uh, for anything. And it's not because the users are the product and we're trying to siphon money from them. It's because... We are here exchanging value for value, idea for idea, and we're all enriched by the quality of ideas that happens. And it's not only ideas that people share with each other. I helped out my neighbor for, for no expected expense. 
he's redoing his lawn. I helped him bring in wheelbarrows of soil. And then at the end, he said, oh, I've got extra soil. Would you like some? Just value for value, right? No money changed hands. Uh, as, as just one simple example, this used to be a lot more commonplace. And I think this is one of the things that we've, we've kind of gotten broken in our society. It's like you spend all your time thinking about how to do something that someone will give you money for, or the rest of your time thinking what you can get someone to do for you with the money that you've gotten, instead of thinking about this value for value replacement. And what I'm really hoping, as, and I don't know over what time frame this happens, but is is that having sound money, Bitcoin, is going to be so much more than just a replacement for the broken money that we have. It'll replace the broken society where we've mistakenly elevated money above all other values, right? And it, it'll be a society where we openly spend a lot of our time exchanging value for value with people who we like, whose values we share, and who can who we can help out and they can help us out. I think that's a more human civilization. That that really speaks to the true nature of humanity. This modern capitalism tells us we're all greedy and selfish and we only do things in our own self-interest without concern for other people. And I like I really want to call out the bullshit on that because <laughs> that's not the human beings I've encountered in my life and I don't think it's me. Well, okay, so you're speaking of from your anecdotal experience. There's actually been books written on this subject. There's this book, book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Um by Graeber, I think is I think it was written by Graeber, if I'm not mistaken. But he pointed out that in, in he's an anthropologist, by the way, not an not an economist. I found the book fascinating. What he what he determined was is that the natural natural human behavior that that um, kind of rises to the surface in a natural environment is that of debt, not money exchanging hands. But by debt. He means service to other humans. Like I do something for you, you do something for me. You know, like uh, you do something for me in my time of need, and I'm indebted to you. Maybe not, you know. Maybe you don't put a number on it and say, okay, well, I owe you this much. But it's like as humans, that's how we naturally operate. We serve each other, and it's normal. And it was. It wasn't until just like you said. I think that the fiat system was created, which created inflation, which causes prices to run away and bifurcates wealth. By bifurcating wealth, meaning it makes one small class of people ridiculously wealthy while everybody else struggles to keep up with the rate of price increases. And that causes very specific types of behavior that are not natural. Yeah. You know, I I, was, I, I can't remember exactly who this is attributed to, but apparently, so, you know, this is like from Harvard Business School or something, one of the leading thinkers thinks the reason that corporations exist is because it's too complicated to contract every relationship that needs to happen within a, within a corporation. And I like, you know, I, I was a good little student. I studied all this stuff in business school and I, I said, okay, this sounds like a reasonable theory, but I didn't, have, I didn't make the intellectual leap to say, well, are corporations the only places in which people can deal with each other, not by contract? Like the second that you step out of working within a corporation with your colleagues in the corporation, must you must you then only deal by transactions and contracts and, and, and promises? Or is is there, as you described, service to one another where we don't have to document everything and say, you know, well, Alec, you know how I proofread your article. That means you pick me up and drive me to this school. And like, it just, it, we, oh, when we open our eyes, we see we do a lot more for each other than just that which changes hands with money. 
And if we actually recognized that there was so much more that we could do, we would have a better version of a civilization, with, which might be a post, an aftermodern capitalism, because right now it's gotten pretty ugly. Yeah, and I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. It's like, you know what causes that human behavior of of wanting to keep tabs, like keep track and all that other kind of stuff? That's actually a scarcity mentality when it comes down to it. Like there's two driving forces. One is you're watching this bifurcation of society where some people are becoming fabulously wealthy and they're they're leading these amazing lifestyles and, and the young folks are like, I want to be like that. And then at the same time, you know, it because it, there's this scarcity mentality where people are, are are like in survival mode. Therefore, I have to keep track of everything. I want to make sure you pay me what you owe me. It's nonsense, and it's all driven by fiat. Fuck fiat by Bitcoin, puppy. Yeah, this is great stuff. Um, yeah, you know, you know, we call it here now is crony capitalism, not not the pure capitalism of of two competing people coming up with a an excellent product where may the best man, woman, whatever your pronouns are, win type of thing. What you have now is such a disadvantage um, from your mom and pop shops, for example. What, you, what you've what seen in two years, um, listen, every major corporation in the world, one, they're, they're the ones that are closest to get, to get that money. Um, the mom and pops that were around here for two years had to suffer. While everyone else had cheap money, um, they could take it from any part of the country if you if they have stores that are doing well, they could move it to other cities that weren't doing as well, and they can they cannot last all of these mom and pop shops. You know, and a lot of this goes back. Um, you know, there there's a, a you know everyone knows about the um, the Federal Reserve. We talk about this started in 1913 as one of the problems. Uh, there was a little known case in the 1800s from Santa uh, Clara County and Southern Pacific Railroad, which came up with this concept of corporate personhood. All right, long story short, basically. It gave these massive corporations the rights of an individual. Now that's a problem, okay? Because their their pockets are much deeper than an individual. So if you guys want to do a little research, man, check out uh, corporate personhood. And this is the mess we find ourselves in today: is that these corporations get such an advantage. And I'll just give you one example. You get think about this one: um, the the one person who probably benefited the most over the last two years uh, when we we're in lockdown. Let's be honest. Is uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon? All right, great. We get <laughs> you get to deliver everything door to door. Everything else is shut yeah. down. It's and, like and, perfect for his well, business, right? Well, n- hey, let's go one step further. Uh, guess who was in control of the Washington Post? Okay, guess who controls the narrative of these lockdowns? Are you kidding me? The guy that controls the narrative also benefits. This is the problem that we're running into today. Mm, yeah, that's well said. I think if, since you brought it up, Puppy, the, in my experience, the big issue with this corporate personhood is the fear is this uh, concept of limited liability, which is like if you go bankrupt as a person, the law says nobody else owes your debts, right? Unfortunately, the people who you had debts to uh, have to settle up with what assets you had, and that's the end of it. Corporate person had give personhood gives this protection to shareholders of corporations by saying the corporation is a person if it goes bankrupt you can't go after the shareholders assets and so people protect themselves and shield themselves with through corporate personhood and and 
they're able to put lots of risk into a company and not face the consequences of the risk that ends up happening. And so if they if you manage to siphon resources, assets out of a company into your own property, and then the company goes out of business, the the uh, claimants of, of the assets of that company are left high and dry. And I think that's become a real big problem. And the same is also true of cascading legal obligations. So if a corporation does something which would be a crime, and you think about how silly this is, like let's say it pushes a dangerous medicine uh, on on people and conceals it, none of the, none of the people who were involved in making that decision end up being held liable. And certainly the shareholders, maybe the management does, but the shareholders don't. And the shareholders will have withdrawn dividends and benefits throughout. And so it's this shielding of liability for the actions that is the most perverse thing about corporate personhood. Yeah, I think Citizens United is probably one of the other most perverse things about corporations and now their ability to uh, influence politics um, like never before. But that's just me. All right. I would like to point out that in about mm, 20, 30 minutes, we're going to be rolling into a conversation with Jason Meyer. He's a teacher and progressive Bitcoiner dedicated to making Bitcoin accessible to all people. I'm reading a little bio here that Jacob prepared for me. Author of the book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. Just really quick, and then we can continue rolling on this discussion. Um, looking forward to that. And I just want to say to this gentleman, you are a brave man as a, as a quote, progressive coming on this show. Not that we're not anti I mean, we're really not. I'm, I'm happy to talk to him ever. But like this morning's discussion was very vigorous and in, in many ways in the other direction. So kudos to you, sir. Uh, we'll be kind, I promise. What else we got? Hey, I got a quick thing on trust, man. Um, everything you guys brought up earlier, does it, what's interesting is what's come out of this, this past two years. It, it's not so much right now. Um, I, I'm glad, trust me, that I was in the Bitcoin community for this because it's been the Bitcoin community that was calling it out from the beginning. All right. You know, don't trust, verify. Um, when I talk about the trust, it's not the trust moving forward. OK, it's not the trust that we have seen um, just ruined from the scientific community the media narrative. It's not the trust in the future. Now we have to go and look into the past. Okay. That's the problem. It's not so much the future to me. Now you have to go back and say, if this lie has been out there for this, what else have they lied about? What else, when I go back in history, have they lied about? Where, where, where did the trust go off the rails? See, that's the major problem. Okay. Now you have to go as an individual back Okay, what was the truth then? What was the truth? You know, all the conspiracies now really pick up steam. When did the, when did the trust go off the rails? Was there ever trust? Yeah, it's a damn no. good question. Makes you wonder things that make you go hmm, and you start just you know. There's this. I heard this podcast, and I'm try, I can't remember the name of the gentleman, but it was a really long and in depth podcast. Apparently, this guy studies like the political lies that have been told throughout time to start wars, basically. And as it turns out, most wars were started based upon lies. It's crazy. 
I mean, this country was built on the idea of mistrust. This country, you know, don't trust the, the don't, you, you can't install a king because you can't trust them. I mean, that's, we, we've had mistrust in this country forever. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, there's I don't, nothing I don't, wrong with it. It's, it's, I don't it's, like the idea of one dude like holier than thou, supposedly the perfect human who's not going to make bad decisions is in charge of everybody. I think that's crazy. Well, of course. But I mean, when Pubby says, when did the mistrust start, right? Well, in this country, it started at the inception of this country. I want to go back to something Hotep said earlier. We got a question from the audience uh, because Hotep was saying fractional reserve banking is part of modern capitalism. Somebody asked us to explain what fractional reserve banking is. Who wants to go? Oh, fractional reserve banking. Um, <laughs> so uh, apparently... Um, yeah, so I wrote a book on this called um, The Patriot Report, Unmasking Conspiracy of Money and War. Shameless plug. Um, you got a link? Uh, yeah, just go We can to, put it uh, in the nest. Yeah, just go to uh, bryansharp.co, B-R-Y-E-N-S-H-A-R-P-E.co, and it'll bring you to my entire library. Um, cool. So simply to put, uh, the colonies, you had, uh, I believe it was Massachusetts and the other one. Adam Smith talks about this, too, and what the nations. But uh, PA was doing it properly, where they did issue a fiat currency, but they were more responsible with it. They didn't just, you know, errantly just uh, inflate the currency. But basically what happens is if you have a certain reserve of a thing, right, let's say it's gold, silver, copper, whatever it is, and you issue notes based upon that and it is then redeemable. The problem is when you have a one-to-one -one ratio of fiat to a reserve, and then that turns into two-to-one, three-to-one, hundred-to-one. And then today it's like 0 0.0001, right? So the reserves don't match up to what the fiat is. So it's a fractional reserve. I don't know if anybody can explain it better, but that's how I understand it to be. I could offer a try. I don't know if it's better. It's, um, you know, you put your money in a bank and it was originally for safekeeping. They had a safe, they had guards safer than your house. And then you could go to the bank and you say, give me back my money. And they'd open up the safe and take out yours. And then they got into something called loaning. And so they would take some of the money out of the safe and loan it to other people at interest. And at that point, they only have a fraction of what was deposited with them in reserve. And that's fractional reserve. And the more they lend out, the less people can come in and say, can I have my money back? And uh, eventually it got to the point where only a very small percentage of the reserves were held in the bank. And this was, this was when money was all gold. Um, to make it easier, banks issued bank notes right? like when so when you have paper money it wasn't always issued by the government it was issued by banks allegedly as claims against gold in their safes in their reserves and uh some of them got the really fancy idea of issuing more notes than there were reserves because people weren't going to cash in all those notes and ask for the species ask for the gold or silver in return and this is where you get the debasement of money because you end up with more notes circulating as claims on gold and silver than there actually is gold and silver. And of course, today, the, all the banknotes are issued by the Federal Reserve Bank, not, not by individual banks, and they're backed by absolutely nothing whatsoever. 
So, so calling it fractional reserve against any sound money is is a misnomer because it's a division by zero error because the, the reserves are zero. Um, but it's even it's in a sense um, just as bad because the banks create money by like they don't they don't issue you banknotes held by the Federal Reserve. You go in, you sign a mortgage, and they put an entry in a database saying. Okay, they loaned you a million dollars, and you owe them interest on a million dollars, and it's all this imaginary yeah. money, not even banked. And, and, and it's it's granting a certain group of people, namely bankers, the permission to advantage themselves in the system over you, right? Like, can you create? Okay, so this is what they're doing in a fractional reserve banking system. When they make a loan, let's say I make a loan uh, to Ant, and um. I get $1,000 somebody deposits with my bank. I have to reserve some part of that according to the law, and I can loan out the rest, right? Well, nowadays, the reserves, I don't even know if there is a reserve requirement, but it's got, it's, it, over time, it's been reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced. So essentially, let's call it 10%. Let's say I'm required to reserve 10% of my what I get for deposits, uh, and I can loan out the rest. So I loan Ant $900, so to speak. Do I actually take that money out and loan it? No. What banks are doing is is digital sleight of hand because what they're doing is, is they're, they're entering some some numbers into into a computer and then that money is magically created out of thin air that gets loaned to ant. Now here's the point. They get I get to charge interest on that. And I can do this as kind of like a special decree, you know, I've been blessed by the government with sprinkly holy water and like, you're good people. You're better people than everybody else. So somehow you're allowed to do this and nobody else is. If you did that, you'd go to fucking prison. That's called counterfeiting. And it's you know, bullshit. It's, just the, the one last narrow point I'd make is, is the central bank isn't called the central bank. It's called the Federal Reserve. And the history of it is it... It, I believe this is true. It was responsible for overseeing the actual reserves that the that the federal government had of actual reserves of real currency of of, of real money of gold yeah, and it, silver. Yeah, it, it, it had oversight over the treasury. Yeah. Well, there you and so there you go. And like, there is no treasury. They make it up. They 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 print obligations that aren't backed by any reserves. It's the reserve. The federal money printer. So these names have become distorted over time because they relate to a legacy when different things were true. But you know, and and we still use and cling to things like fractional terms like fractional reserve. But it, it almost doesn't even really apply to the modern banking system because there's nothing held. There's nothing material held in reserve anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> the the whole the whole name Federal Reserve is a lie. First of all, it's not federal, and they have no reserves. It's hilarious. Uh, and Alex, real quick, I, and, and okay. I'm all I'm all about the hands, guys. You know that. You know that when I do spaces, I'm all about the hand. But I just had to jump in just to throw one little thing in there uh, because we all talk about the fantastic book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, the founding of the Federal Reserve. But they actually had a. There's actually a part in there. It was a concerted effort to actually come up and use the word federal. They knew it wasn't, but they wanted this to go out to the public. And they figured if we use the name federal and we use an eagle as our crest, 
it'll make it sound official. It'll make it sound legal. So that's where the Federal Reserve came from. They actually thought about that when they, when they came up with the entire name. Of course they did. Of course they did. Are you going to tell me that Federal Express is, is not federal and they're not express? I don't know. I feel like they're express. Ant, what do you got? Yeah, you guys touched like pretty much on what I'm going to say, but I just say it real fast because this is something that I share with people when I'm doing that orange bill bit. But it's like, yeah, I mean, this is there's like a couple of different ways that the the you know people think that it's like oh there's this big printer and they just like hit a button and like they're printing more money, but it's like it's it's more sinister than that. That you know this fractional reserve lending whatever. I always thought that it was ten percent. Maybe it's less that you know they only have to hold like ten percent. I don't know, but. That's the idea. I bring it down to like Alice and Bob and like $1 when I'm telling people, I say like, you know, Alice puts $1 in the bank and that's all the bank has is that $1. And then Bob comes in and wants a loan, you know, and so, but, but they're going to give that, you know, out of like, or whatever Alice is. And again, I'm, I'm being really simple with it because I don't know how all these banks work. I don't no idea. But the idea is like, so then they're going to give Bob his loan because that's what they're in business to do, you know, using that liquidity, I guess, from Alice, but then, and everything's fine. But then all of a sudden Alice comes in and wants that dollar back and Bob still has that loan, you know? So then it's like, well, they have to create that little, like you said, Alex, like that ledger entry and then boop, boop, out of thin air, you know, a little bit of money. like magic. Yeah, has been added to the system. I'm not talking about the other way where like, you know, the, the treasury issues a treasury bond and like, you know, then they, you know, auction it to all the rich bankers and the bankers go trade it out at the Federal Reserve, which has like a bank account with zero dollars in it and like all that shell game. I'm not talking about that. This is like one of the ways that money is created in this system. And I think, you know, I've had success sharing that with people and like breaking it down to like one dollar with Alice and Bob. But I don't know if it is 10%. I'd love to know what the real number is. Like, can they loan Bob 90 cents or is it? I think like, it's closer to 1% now and it might be closer to zero. Someone knows the answer to this. It Jason, depends you know on the answer to this? Talking about, it depends if yeah. you're talking about a Federal Reserve I, Bank or, or the a local answer, branch. The answer is actually zero right now. Uh, it got That's reduced. what I thought. It's 0%. So uh, that's the answer. So, <laughs> in other words, banks can create unlimited amounts of money and they have to have no reserves. We have reached peak idiocracy. Yeah, I mean that's that's your divided by zero thing right there, right? That's where you get infinity. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's not it's not exactly zero, but it's like zero point zero 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 one. So it's so low that it might as well be zero. It used to be four uh, percent. I know you guys talk about ten percent, but basically, if they kept four percent on reserves, um, that was all they needed. Uh, they well, they've had the actuaries, they've run the numbers. Is there going to be a bank run? Probably not. But man, what a sweetheart deal. Um, you get a loan at less than 1%. You get to you get to issue credit cards, okay, mortgages. You get to issue this stuff anywhere between 5 and 25% that you put out there. These are just numbers, man. These are just numbers on a spreadsheet. You get to lend that out and collect those payments every month. Meanwhile, you owe nothing. This is fractional reserve. We've been getting screwed for years. And the amazing part about it to me is, is that they get blessed by the government, you know, like as if the people in the government doing the blessing somehow know better than everybody else that they can say that these people are holier than thou and they now have the power to do this. They literally are granting the power 
of time and energy to people to to the to the small select group of people. Because if you think about it, what are you doing when you're when you're working to earn money? You're expending your life, your precious moments, your minutes, your seconds, your hours. That once they're gone, they're gone forever. But these motherfuckers can create unlimited amounts of money instantly at the press of a button. Does that seem fair to you? I mean, I I, uh, I learned a lot about this. My dad came in the 70s during Nixon's time, and he always told me in the, in the early 70s is when they stopped uh, using uh, the gold as you know backing for, for this fiat. And so the problem was they said they were having bank runs already, like people were exchanging the dollar for gold. And I was curious if anyone else had any, like, uh, other reasons i think we were facing inflation at the time too like what what other reasons did we stop using gold oh I, let me jump in on this one real quick what what they saw were other nations realized oh wait a second we can redeem money for gold and guess what happened boom other nations started turning on the printing press the u.s got wind of it you see other nations were like fuck this let's just print this bitch and get gold this is what happened man they realized we had to go off a gold standard because other nations were starting to take advantage of it. Yeah, and specifically, specifically, specifically because of Maynard fucking Kings and his Bretton Woods agreement when they tied um, everybody else's currency and made United States dollar the world reserve currency. And these countries were able to take their bullshit fiat currency and redeem it for gold. So once our gold reserves were depleted, then we had to go off the gold standard. And I wrote about that in my book as well. That's that's the that's the one thing people have to understand about this country is the two biggest problems with monetary policy was the Bretton Woods Agreement and the Monetary Act of 1980. People think the Federal Reserve is one thing, but the Monetary Act of 1980 is the one that gave the Federal Reserve jurisdiction over all banks. And that was like really the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, it was a series of, of really bad things, right? 1913. Federal Reserve Act was created, 1944, Bretton Woods, 1971, severing the United States dollar from gold, and then, as you mentioned, uh, giving the Federal Reserve power over all banks. What is Bretton Woods? What is that, Alex? All right, so Bretton Woods, 1944, basically after World War II, um, the the leaders of the world, all the the leaders of the nations of the world got together at, at a place called Bretton Woods, and it's a, it's a, I think it's a hotel, whatever. Um, anyway, that's not the point. It's a mansion. Okay. The, and they, and they basically discussed how should we essentially rebuild the world? What are we going to use and how are we going to do it? And that's where they agreed to make the United States dollar, the world's reserve currency, as well as the world's trade currency. Why? Because the U S dollar was essentially backed by gold. You could convert U.S. dollars into gold. Like if, if the U.S. issued a bunch of dollars and, and if some country was like, okay, well, I want to turn the dollars in and get gold, they could. So we basically conned the whole world <laughs> into accepting United States dollars uh, as world reserve currencies uh, and, and the, 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 the trade currency as well because countries believed that they could redeem it for gold. And that was true right up until 1971, where Nixon was like, yeah, nah, we ain't going to do that anymore. <laughs> the only reason the entire system works this way is because the people who control it have made it so complex that the people who are forced to use it don't understand how it works. And if they did, 
then it would fall apart immediately. Precisely correct. And and um, Ford Ford said the same thing. If he said that if the American people understood how modern banking works, there'd be a revolution by morning. Peter. Yeah, sorry, um, I forgot my hand was up. I, I, I um, you know, the one thing I wanted to say was that uh, you know the fractional reserve system is basically legally sanctioning, financially incentivizing fiat miners, which are banks, to create nothing, uh, money out of nothing. And we all pay that. We all get taxed. It's like a, it's like a tax that we all pay. They're basically stealing from us. And then as far as uh, going off the gold standard, I think the conversations for, for going off the gold standard uh, were born out of the inability of the United States to be able to afford simultaneously the Vietnam War, the space race, uh, and the, uh, 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 the social, uh, um, called the social contract, whatever it was that, that bill for, you know, providing, um, uh, you know, all, all the help that, that we were doing for the, the less advantaged in this country. You know, what's interesting is, is that if you study monetary history, times when countries have gone off gold standards are often, are often because they could not essentially afford to pay for wars. So they needed, they quote, needed to go to war. They didn't have enough money. So they would go off of some kind of restrictive system where they could basically make as much money as they wanted to. And you usually there were debts incurred. Now, here's the interesting part about that. Who benefits from countries at war? The rich. The, 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 the bombmakers. The, 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 uh, the war finance, yeah. That chapter one of my book actually Nails starts it. out with that. Um, the, the, in fact, many of the crowns of Europe had um, a, a gentleman who would not only handle finances, because many of the kings were illiterate and financially illiterate, but they would handle like the queen's dowry, et cetera, et cetera. But the guy who was pushing the guns was also financing the guns. So you, you know, you yep. have people, they were dealing in smuggling, they were dealing in yep. uh, intelligence. Right. And, um, for example, we know about, you know, Rothschild and, you know, his intelligence network and how he created his uh, yep. empire with intelligence. So it, it's, it's actually multifaceted, but what they do is they might not even be the manufacturer, but they finance the purchase of these weapons. And a yes, lot of sir. times they were financing both sides of the war too. Yes, that's the amazing part. That's, that's, I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. Hotep, you're incredibly well-educated. Well done, Thank you. sir. Well, I, I wrote a book on it. So like I had to do like two years of research. So I'm like a pseudo expert on the matter. Nice. And, and by the way, Hotep is precisely correct. And um, I, I was reminded of a quote by one of the Rothschilds, I don't remember which one, but he basically said you. the most, the best customer in the world for a bank is a nation at war. And, and those jerk offs were financing both sides of the war, the battle of Waterloo. Like they were financing both sides. They didn't care who won or lost. They were banking. They, they were going to make money anyway. Yeah. Ahead, and, the, and the funny oh, thing sorry, is, they would they would finance one king, right? And then he'd lose the war and, you know, maybe lose some territory. Then he'd be replaced by the new king. And the guy would finance the next king, right? Like, and it's funny because people think, like, the kings had all this power, and they didn't. It was the guy behind them who was financing everything. 
who who really had the power because nobody really knew about him. He was sort of in the shadows. But as you know, each new king came in, he was right there to finance him and right there to push him into war. You know, we always talk about how Bitcoin fixes this. You know, we, we talk about, well, how does Bitcoin stop war? Um, how does it stop this fighting? And I always go back to the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and, and most Americans, they sort of remember learning about it in school. What they don't remember is why it came about. Basically, the U.S. doubled their land size because, guess what? Napoleon needed money to pay off war debt. He needed money. He needed, there was no fiat system for him. Guess what? He sold us for $15 million, double the land size. All right. He was involved in Haiti. He's involved in the, the was it the Great France War? I think they called it. But guess what? At the end of the day, when you need cash on the barrel head, at the time, gold was it. The same with Bitcoin. War stopped. War stopped for France because they could not afford to keep going. They had to sell off property. So it's an interesting thing, man. You go back in history. Um, it, it's so fantastic to see what Bitcoin will mean moving forward on that standard. Yeah, if you want to understand the Mississippi Purchase and you want to understand fractional reserve banking, you have to go look at John Law because he was the guy that was handling all those um, you know, uh, financial transactions and uh, was handling the stock speculation on that terrible land, which was the Mississippi, Louisiana region of the United States. So you got to research John Law. He's the guy that really... In fact, I think he got the idea from Switzerland or Sweden. It's one of those SWs. I think it was the Dutch. I think it was the Dutch. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And then he sort of brought that to France. And then um, that's what became the whole Mississippi Purchase or whatever. My bad, Ant. You know, and and hold on. the, 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 the The modern version of the Louisiana Purchase is when the Russians sold us Alaska because we almost doubled again when we when we got Alaska and they did that because of their loss in the Crimea War and you know they had to uh, protect themselves in the future they needed they needed money. I, I, well, I, I I have alternative information on that. Um, that comes back to the uh, Civil War, and that was um, the North was actually at war with the South. England and France. And um, it was Russia that came to uh, the North's aid. And part of that deal was, hey, you got to take this territory, Alaska, back as part of the deal, as part of repayment, et cetera, et cetera. They had to actually buy that back from Russia. That's the alternative information I got. But, you know, we could both be correct as well, because there's always more than one reason for decisions. Man, that's super interesting. I've never heard that before. Where, 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 did, you, um, uh, where did you see that or where, where did you research that? It's in my book, <laughs> um, the Patriot Report. I'm asking conspiracy of money and war. It's in there. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. I'm going to have shameless to get your plug, book. Shameless plug. <laughs> That's awesome. Ant, what do you got? We'll we'll go with Ant, and then we're going to wrap this part of the show up, and then uh, we're going to start talking to Jason about his book. Go ahead, Ant. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to what you were talking about, about, uh, you know, the use like, the U.S. sending the money around the world and like, you know, trick basically like getting people to get the dollar. I mean, the Bitcoin standard covers this as well. Like it, it talks about how, you know, throughout history, there's like numerous instances of like one party or one group of people, you know, uh, like stealing the value or the wealth of of like another party or another group. And it could be like, you know, whether it's coin clipping you know, from the old days or like, 
you know, that whole Rystone bit, you know, on Isle of Yap or like the Europeans coming down and, and you know, uh, manufacturing agribeads and breaking the African economy. You know, I mean, there's like all different ways that some people have taken other people's value that, you know, is covered in, in the Bitcoin standard. And this is another one that, that a lot of people don't they haven't realized fully. Like when you understand that flow, the like the dynamic of one party stealing another party's wealth through like a series of covert measures. Then you look at what happened when, you know, these dollars were being sent around the world so that, you know, and purchasing gold and basically trading out the gold of other nations for dollars. It's that's one of the things that really gets me going. I mean, it's like one of the greatest heists of all time. Yeah. It's some real no, nonsense. No, it is. Man. It is the greatest heist of all time. It is absolutely. I, I actually, um, being an objective person, I admire it. I'm like, you know, if we were look at human beings as just organisms on a rock, you'd have to say, okay, this is the dominant mind on a planet, which is able to uh, encapsulate the entire population of the Western world under his uh, his scheme, his 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 his, his uh, machinations of financial power, uh, it's actually uh, rather admirable, objectively speaking. Subjectively speaking, it's like you fucking asshole. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, they they completely have. This is the best trick ever. And the funny thing is, it's not an old trick either. It, I mean, it's not a new trick either. It's this is like I said, I did the research on it, and it's very old. <laughs> Great stuff, man. Great discussion today. Hotep, this has been fantastic. I would love to have you back as a featured guest someday if you want to do it. I would love to dig into your backstory, more about you. You're kind of a fascinating dude to me. So if you're willing to do that, I'll get you hooked up with Jacob, who runs our schedule, and maybe someday we'll do that with you. Count me in, man. I'm there. Thank you. Sweet. You bet. All right. Let's dig in with Jason Meyer. Jason is a teacher and progressive Bitcoiner dedicated to making Bitcoin accessible to all people, including liberals, progressives worldwide. I'm going to read a little bit from your bio, Jason, hope you don't mind. And then we'll dig into you or your topics, your story, et cetera, a little bit more. Um, so this is from the bio of his book, why he wrote the book. I decided to write a progressives case for Bitcoin because I had a difficult time finding resources to learn about Bitcoin that were not directed at conservatives and libertarians. At the time, I didn't feel like progressives people had a place within the Bitcoin community. And even worse, I noticed my liberal friends were being given misinformation about Bitcoin from the media and some liberal politicians. I dedicated myself to writing a, an approachable argument about why Bitcoin can and should be used by progressives to create a more just, equitable, and peaceful world. Good morning and welcome, Jason. Uh, thanks, Alex. Uh, I think that's a pretty good way to introduce the story uh, about you know why I decided to write the book, um, and I'm I'm happy to maybe dig a little bit deeper into that and and answer any questions that you have. Um, and just by way of introduction, I'll say that um, you know I I got into Bitcoin uh, originally. Uh, I, I developed a conviction for it through more of a math and computer science lens, um, and never really viewed it at the very beginning of my journey as as a political thing at all. Um, and so the more I, I tried to look into it and learn, I was insatiable in terms of just learning as much as I can about Bitcoin. And I realized um, 
more and more that there was just um, a, a lot of the resources, I don't want to say all, but a lot of the resources had this underlying assumption that the person listening to it uh, was a conservative person, libertarian, and had that sort of political mindset. Um, and so I realized that if I was going to try to convince my friends and family and coworkers, all of whom, you know, maybe left a center, um, you know, I was having a difficult time doing that. And so uh, the book is really uh, maybe uh, you can think of it as a compilation of sort of the greatest hits, like what works uh, with just sort of liberal progressive no coiners who don't really know a lot, right? They're low information about Bitcoin. Uh, maybe all that they really know is what they've heard from Elizabeth Warren and they believe what they've heard from Elizabeth Warren. Um, and I just needed to have a resource that I could just hand off to people. Um, and so that was the the motivation behind writing the book. I'm a teacher. Um, that's my day job. That's my fiat job is I teach math. Um, and so I'm just passionate about educating people, uh, in this case, uh, about Bitcoin and uh, wanted to compile a way to, to sort of orange pill, um, you know, the people in my life and, and beyond who absolutely just don't know a lot about Bitcoin um, and have to sort of get over that FUD and misinformation to, to start. So, um, you know, not to I'm not sure if you want me to go more, but I'm, I'm happy to answer questions or speak to, to more to any of that uh, if you want. So I'll follow your lead. Yeah, man. Why don't you tell us about like, um, like what's the what's the thesis? Essentially, you said that uh, I believe Bitcoin should be used by by everyone, and there's a lot of reasons for progressives and liberals to use it as well. You want to talk about that? Like, where are you coming from on there? Yeah, sure. I mean, so uh, first and foremost, the thesis is uh, Bitcoin as a protocol is just apolitical, right? Like there is no uh, political preference. It's open to everybody. And, and ultimately, it's a goal uh, for Bitcoin to be a global money. And so if that's the case, then it needs to be available for everybody. Um, and at the same time, Bitcoin is difficult to learn about if, if you're not an expert and it takes a lot of legwork, a lot of hours of learning about Bitcoin. Um, and so if I wanted to, to convince people that they should give it a chance or to look more into it, then I needed to give them a resource that wasn't going to turn them off, uh, essentially. Right. So a lot of, um, you know, like as we were talking about earlier, right, like uh, after a very political segment on the show, you're like, well, this show isn't political. But the, the whole idea is that like Bitcoin itself is not a political thing. Um, and yet there's a whole sort of one half of the political spectrum that probably isn't going to feel welcomed if, uh, you know, if they're listening or reading certain books or listening to certain podcasts. So, um, you know, I, I have lots of examples. One of them is, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, liberal, progressive, hippie people who don't like war. And if you don't understand, like, the mechanisms by which war is financed, uh, by which, you know, lies are told and people are, are making money off of war and war is financed through fiat money. Money, uh, then you don't, you're not going to have the vocabulary to talk about it in a deep way, right? So, um, you know, that's just that's one example, right? Um, there's, uh, you know, another example is going to be wealth inequality. If you, if you, as a liberal person, you know, like I've my entire adult life have said, well, this is a problem. We need to address this. We need to th worry about this. This is going to cause social collapse or social decay if if we have this much wealth inequality without really understanding the vocabulary, the root causes, and what's going uh, on behind that, right? So, you know, there's a lot of causes that speak to, to liberal people who they know that there's a problem within this current fiat system and never have heard the word fiat before. Um, they just think that, you know, well, I don't want to speak for everybody, but, you know, there's just a lot of 
problems in this world that liberal people want to solve, and they don't really have the vocabulary to understand what's really behind it. And I think Bitcoin provides a lens to, to view those problems and view this, you know, the structures that society has built um, in a way that is is more, uh, you know, true. And and I think that if we get specifically those people who are against it, realizing that this is going to give them a different lens, then, um, you know, I, I think that that's just going to work towards educating them. So, and that, that, those are a couple examples, but there's, you know, obviously there's many. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's correct. Like the vast, vast majority of people really have no idea why things are the way they are, especially when it comes to our monetary system, how the, how, how money works how it's really, there's so many systems of control that have been set up through bureaucratic and government means that force people into this. Basically, you're, you're forced onto this hamster wheel to run your entire life to produce that, that the government then gets to basically leech off of. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm just on this. I, yeah. You know what? I'm not even going to apologize for it. This is just no. where my brain's at today. Yeah. I wanted to point out one thing is, is that, Jason, it's not just liberals who don't necessarily all get that. It, that's across the spectrum of all political sort of leanings, um, belief systems, whatever. Right. I think just the vast majority of human beings in general don't know. No, and I, and I think you're right, and and I'll just I'll just say the motivation behind the book is that um, if if the if one of the answers to that is Bitcoin, um, and you just sort of picked a random podcast or a random book about Bitcoin off the shelf, um, then you know with by the first three chapters you might be turning some liberal people off. Um, so you know, and and so that's the idea, right? The whole point of my book is just to say, um, all right, you're a progressive person. Um, you, uh, you know, you don't, you're not into Bitcoin at all. And my goal is to get them from zero to one. And it's not, um, you know, my book is not to say that, um, you know, it's not an argument against conservative people being into Bitcoin. It's not to change anybody's political views. If you're a conservative person, libertarian, uh, there's absolutely no intention for me to change your mind. Uh, I'm not able to do that. And it's not my intention. It's just to say there's a, there's a very big audience of people who are about to get into Bitcoin and they're going to need, um, some sort of resource that they feel comfortable starting and getting a conviction, um, and and I think that the hope is that my book might be the first per, you know the first book that those people uh, read, but not the last. Right? Once you um, see that there's some value to it and some of the fud that you're um, that you're exposed to as a liberal voter, a regular person, you know, member of the citizenry, um, you get a conviction, and then you can kind of dive in a little bit deeper into some of the other aspects of Bitcoin and, and keep learning about it. Um, yeah, so it's not a replacement. It's not to say that like only liberal people are believed that way, but I, I do think that there's a dearth of uh, resources out there that speak directly to that audience. So, Tomer, go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly interested to uh, peruse peruse your book, um, mm -hmm. I, and I haven't yet. I, I always find I, there's two points I'd, I'd make, and I'll try to make them really quick. The second one's definitely a question for you. Um, the first is I've participated or I've been witness to many of these uh, debates between conservatives and liberals or capitalists and socialists about Bitcoin. And what I've always found fascinating is the debate isn't which one of these um, which one of these two sides does 
represent does Bitcoin represent and which one does it not? It's always both sides arguing that Bitcoin better represents their sides. So I, you'd have capitalists saying Bitcoin is good and it's more capitalist in nature, and socialists argue no. Bitcoin is good and it's more socialist in nature. And so it was that these seemingly diametrically opposed philosophies uh, both found um, safety or comfort in Bitcoin. And, and I, this, is, this will then take me to the next question that I have. It's like, I think one of the biggest concerns that liberals or people on the left side of the spectrum tend to have when they hear about Bitcoin is they believe the government can solve a lot of problems as if they just vote in the right people in government with the right solutions. And Bitcoin disempowers the politicians to do anything, whether it's good or bad, right? Like it, it stops them from spending in, in deficit. And is, is, how, do you, how do you address that objection if you do in your book or that concern? Yeah, no, I appreciate both points. I, I think, to, I mean, to you very quickly to your first point, I think Bitcoin is is a mirror, right? People can look at it and see what they want to see. Um, and, and certainly I make no argument that Bitcoin better represents socialism or, or people on the left. I, I just, my argument is simply that those people should be invited uh, into the community and, and they should be free to learn about it in, in a way that makes sense to them. So not that uh, it's it's more progressive than it is conservative. Uh, certainly, I, I don't believe that. I believe it's just apolitical and that we need both sides having productive conversations. And I don't necessarily see that happening um, a lot. So, so the, the, and to so your second point, I, I think that, the, you know, the, that's not the number one concern that I get from liberal. Right? So like, just, I, I understand that that might be something to, and I'll speak to it. Um, I mean, certainly I'll just put this out there. The number one concern that liberal people have that I talk to is just the environmental impact. Right. And that's, and that's the number one source of FUD misunderstanding that, that I need to rectify and get over because um, once somebody's made up their mind about that, it's very hard to change. Um, so I think that that's, that's a piece of it. And that's something that those people really, you know, I'll, I'll include myself in that, we really care about the environment and we want to do the right thing and we want to be knowledgeable about it. So that's the, the number one thing. I think that the, the rectification to like, well, Bitcoin inherently weakens the government or their ability to, to spend money or to spend in deficit to solve problems I think that the characterization that the government can solve all problems, and this is something that just the typical liberal believes, is is probably not accurate. Um, just <laughs> I think that the uh, you know in my circles and the people I talk to and and in the people who have the same bumper stickers on their car as me um, think that the government should be there to um, you know be. Uh, to create more of a level playing field, to protect people who are vulnerable within society, to, um, you know, uh, legislate uh, externalities to people's actions uh, if if the, the free market isn't doing that already. Um, so I think that there's functions of government that people on the left really find dear and they they feel it's important. And I don't know that, um, you know, being on a Bitcoin or adopting Bitcoin as part of the financial system globally undercuts that to the extent to which like, we need the government to do that. Um, 
and I'll just say personally, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the entire idea of a large government or a powerful nation state is relatively new within, you know, our civilization. Um, you know, it's only 500 years old. And I do think that there's opportunity for Bitcoin to just sort of change the social dynamic that exists um, all over the world and how governments are, are organized. And, um, you know, I, I don't see any inherent problem or contradiction with that in, in terms of the core beliefs of a progressive person. Um, so I, I think that's maybe that's a, a rambling response, but I, I don't see a conflict. I think that um, uh, the most of the liberals that I come in contact with aren't necessarily blindly saying the government needs to spend a lot of money. I think that what they prefer is that the government spends money on what they think is the right thing. And, um, you know, Bitcoin doesn't inherently make that impossible. So, uh, you know, therefore, it's important to be part of the conversations. You know, because Bitcoin is the future, it's not, you know, it's not going to be stopped. And so if you really care about, you know, uh, issue X, Y, or Z, and you want to be part of the conversation, you're going to want to find yourself within the Bitcoin space, too. Um, yeah, just I... a quick follow up, uh, yeah. if you don't mind, Alex. Please go um, to her. Yeah, uh, the, the environment question, I, I'm curious as to, I, I don't want to be seen as putting words into mouth. How do you see the environment um, issue. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, it's the biggest chapter <laughs> I'll say the book isn't out yet. And, uh, it, I'll just say it's, it's available for pre-order. If you're interested in pre-ordering it, there's a Kickstarter on, uh, my Twitter it's pinned on my Twitter uh, profile. So there's my shameless plug. If you're interested in this, either because you're a progressive or you're a conservative who wants the orange pill friends of yours, uh, who you haven't been able to reach, then it's like, hopefully this is a good resource for you. Um, so the book is available for pre-order. The, um, the environment issue is, is complicated. I think that there's a lot of people who knee jerk, um, react to the idea of using energy as a bad thing. And I, and obviously, well, I should say obviously, but, um, if, if you think more deeply about it, then, then that's not necessarily true. And uh, it's just a matter of educating people in the, in the respect that like Bitcoin already is more green than like any other industry right now. And there's incentives in place to make it more renewable. Um, and there's, uh, you know, incentives to build out, uh, you know, more renewable energy for the rest of us to use and to, you know, do all of the things like, you know, find stranded energy sources. So it's just a matter of, um, you know, I... You know, like in my heart of hearts as a, as a liberal person who likes to hug trees, like I would love it if proof of work didn't require energy, but it does, you know, like if there's a way to make Bitcoin that didn't use up a lot of energy, then I would vote for that. But there isn't. And, and any other system that we've tried to implement that, um, you know, is obviously not as good and is, is not as good as Bitcoin. So um, the truth is it uses a lot of energy. And I think that there's a very important argument to make about like the use of that energy and what it the value that it has and not all energy use is just wasteful. Um, and Bitcoin provides an opportunity for a new financial system an open and fair and equitable, um, you know, uh, network that anybody can join and, and it can protect people's wealth in, in ways that the current financial system doesn't. It can protect wealth inequality. Uh, it can help avoid wars, all of the things that we've talked about and touched on. Um, so there's value in it and it's worth the energy that it uses. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised to learn 
lot of people I talk to are surprised to learn that, you know, it's green and it's incentivized to get greener and it's an important use of energy. So these are the main like things that I touch upon in conversations and, and what I write about in my book to, to just talk about the environment piece because um, liberal people, and, you know, again, I'm including myself in that, um, get a lot of happy brain chemicals when they catch somebody not being a good steward of the environment. Like they, they feel justified, like, oh, look at you, you're wasting energy or you're driving this kind of car or whatever. Like for better or worse, like there's brain chemicals that go and tell them that they're doing the right thing by making that conclusion. And wow. so that's the battle that I have to fight against. And, and I'm guilty of that too. When my buddy's fascinating. When my buddy first introduced me to Bitcoin, I was very self-righteous in the fact that you're you're dealing with something that's wasting a lot of energy. And here you are claiming to be a liberal, um, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what we're fighting against in, in a sense, like or trying to educate against, I should say. I did not know that. Man, that is one of the I just learned something new. Thank you, Jason. That's a, that's actually quite amazing. I'm I'm a student of human behavior. And I love learning about what makes people tick and what makes people kind of have the motives and incentives that they have. I did not know that about the the way liberal people think, that you actually get this small burst of like happiness, joy, happy chemicals when you like catch some somebody doing not something naughty, essentially. Well yeah, and and that's true, and 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 to be fair, it happens on both sides, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like the same kind of burst of happiness yeah. when when you know you learn something. I don't know about that. I I I don't. I the reason I found it fascinating is because I can't. I don't relate to it. I have never got a burst of happy chemicals for for catching somebody doing something I consider naughty. Never. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would probably disagree because I listened to the first half of your conversation. It seemed like you had some brain chemicals going, you know, today. <laughs> yeah, but was I catching somebody? So was I catching somebody doing something naughty, or was I, was I passionate about yeah. um, the topics we were discussing? Those are two different things. Sure, right? sure. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So I'm not saying I don't get passionate about stuff. I absolutely do. I've just never gotten a burst of happy chemicals from catching somebody doing something naughty. I just found that fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm not judging it either. I'm just saying it's, it's helped me understand the perspective of people on that spec on that side of the spectrum that it explains some of the behavior that I did not quite understand before. That's all. Well, I'm happy to help. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, a couple of interesting things that have come from this conversation. Number one, Tomer has noted that when you, when you get, people from kind of different spectrums together talking in the, in the context of Bitcoin, everybody's like, yeah, it's awesome because, and then they, they frame it in their own view. <laughs> I think that's pretty freaking fascinating. Number two, I think it's fantastic what you're doing, Jason, because I think that there is a vertical there, a vertical market in terms of liberals need to hear this message as well. And they need to hear it framed in a way where it's not bad for the environment and it's not bad for all the reasons that some of the sort of liberal politicians are trying to frame it. I agree with that 100%. If you want to add a little tweet um, to the bottom of the thread, there's a thread going for the show right now. Uh, if you want to throw a tweet in there with the link to your book, either Ant or Jacob, can we get that posted in the nest? I would love to help promote that. I think that's freaking fantastic as well. Um, one thing I did want to comment on that I found is really interesting is that so I'm a person who, who like I lean towards self-resilience. I lean towards protecting myself. I lean towards um, like being able to protect myself. These are all very important values to me. 
And I know you had mentioned a little while ago that a lot of people who kind of lean in the in the liberal sort of viewpoint or perspective, they want the government to protect people um, and, and people who are not really good at protecting themselves maybe. And I can understand that. And I have my heart, my heart's desire is to do that as well. I'm, I'm what you call a, a sheepdog. Like I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of that term, but there's this paper written by a, by a retired Marine colonel um, basically talking about wolves, sheepdogs and sheep and not to put, you know, not to say anything negative saying sheep or, you know, anything like that, but it's like basically like sheepdogs have, you know, it's, it's just on their heart to protect people who can't protect themselves. It's just the way we're wired. A right. lot of guys like that end up in the military or end up in the police or fire departments or EMTs or something like that, where they're serving, potentially putting their own lives on the line to help and serve and protect other human beings. Now, what I find fascinating about all of that is, is that <laughs> who are you protecting them from? Yeah, and I would. Well, before you answer that, I'm going yeah, go to make, I'm going to frame it the way I see it. And then you, sure, you, can, sure. you can rebut if you want yeah, is yeah. that. I believe that there's small, some small group of the human population that naturally prey on other human beings. I call them psychopaths. I think they fall in the psychopathic spectrum. I don't think these are nice people. I think sheepdogs are wired naturally to fight against them, to protect the, the, the people who aren't really super good at protecting themselves. But here's the fascinating part to me. When you have a fiat monetary system, it's constructed in a way where it eventually causes corruption in the banking system, in the financial system, in, in the monetary system, in the corporate system, eventually in the justice system and the political system. And it creates a system of incentives that reward the psychopaths. Meaning if they are able to run for office and become somehow in charge, then they're the ones that get to dictate how the society runs. And I would argue that we're the that right now it's largely the psychopaths that are in charge and the very people that liberals want to be protected from are now driving the boat. What do you think about that? So, I mean, I would I'd frame it slightly differently, um, which is fine, um, you know, as, as you would expect. So I, I do think that um, with an understanding that the fiat system that we currently have, um, you know, misincentivizes all sorts of actors, right? So we can call them psychopaths, people who take advantage of other people. Um, I just think that there's like the real acknowledgement is that like our society is not built on a fair playing field right now. Um, and so you have corporation, you know, we talked about this, um, you know, or you guys talked about this earlier on the show, right? Like, you know, corporations, banks, um, you know, large, powerful institutions that are going to take advantage of, of regular people. Um, and I don't know that the government is the only or the best way to do that in all cases uh, is to protect people um, who don't maybe have the financial literacy or who might be discriminated against for various reasons. And if we don't necessarily like as a society come together um, to protect them, then, then that's going to be um, a way that people get taken advantage of. I think in the in the truest sense, um, you know, and this is my view, like I, I do believe that the incentives of politicians are skewed and, and I'm not in any way advocating for like, you know, like I'm not a fan of, of people who hold office right now, right? Like I'm, I'm certainly not. Um, but I do think that on a conceptual level, like government is an imperfect uh, representative, you know, representative of 
our society and it should hold up the values that we care about as society. Um, and I think that um, if we were to leave everyone to their own devices and to protect themselves and to uphold the values that we as a group think are important, then the most powerful will still be in charge and the people um, you know, who have the advantages or the head starts are still going to um, profit from that. So I think that um, like, who are we protecting from is, you know, I'm no fan of like any particular person who is in office right now, right? Like, I'm not saying that, um, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden is my hero or something like that. I'm just saying that the, the system right now, and a lot of this um, comes from not all, but a lot of it comes from sort of the fiat structure, comes from, um, you know, systems in place that are meant to oppress people. Um, and in a way, like as a group, as a collective, like it's, you know, our responsibility to fight back against that. Not everybody agrees with that. Um, so, but that's my, that's my take. Fair enough. And, and I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I was just, I was genuinely trying to get your view. Uh, Puppy, you had your hand up for a little while. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, what I always find fascinating about the energy uh, talk when it comes to Bitcoin is where would you rather have your energy spent? It's not so much energy in general, but what makes the energy being spent valuable? Okay, because what's interesting is this. The energy spent in Bitcoin, in mining Bitcoin, is the most valuable energy in the world. Okay, this is the one thing that will lead to freedom digital scarcity no one no one that ever complains about the energy that goes into bitcoin you don't hear them talking about gaming the banking system you never hear them complaining about okay and other things that are against humanity so i find that fascinating um another thing for jason um when it comes to bitcoin in general something anyone can find your background is math. It's simple math, man. It's simple math. How did it become so political? Okay, because on one side, there are people that, quote unquote, are freedom lovers, those that inherently saw the evils of a system. How did it become so politicized? And, and is it because of politics that on the left that they don't see the value? Because I tell you what, if there's one thing that Bitcoin can protect, it's those that need protection. It's the ones that don't have a bank. It's the ones that are screwed over. Bitcoin is the thing that will protect them. Why is it? Why can't they look past the politicization of this? Yeah, I mean, I um, that's what I'm doing. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and and I agree with you. Like the the code, like what we're talking about is a couple hundred lines of computer code, right? Um, and it's all math and computer science. Um, and it and it. You know, there's there's a whole history about Bitcoin and, and why it became political, right? Like the the whole origins of Bitcoin, like was protected and supported by libertarians who thought it was a great vehicle to make the government smaller, um, and and they they came about that uh, conclusion, um, you know, very sincerely, um, and I think that you know it's it's the whole goal, the aspiration for me is that it one day it's not political. It's just a thing like the internet or a toaster is a thing. And, you know, by, by you learning that I'm into Bitcoin does not indicate that, you know, I'm into any other political ideology whatsoever. The, the whole thesis that I'm dealing with is essentially that um, if I hand somebody a book right now um, about Bitcoin to teach them, you know, hey, I'm really into Bitcoin. I think this is going to help people uh, and make the world a better place. Um, 
then, you know, they're going to, I'm going to have to be careful. Hey, you know what, though, skip chapter four, because it kind of goes into a little bit of name calling and bashes people on the left a little bit. And I just don't want that, right? Like for me and, and the people that I'm trying to orange pill. So I'm just trying to create a new thing um, that will orange pill liberal people and they don't need to skip any chapters. Um, you know, I think it's political. One, I think that both sides are just trying to get political, cheap political points. I think the Democrats right now are trying to bash Bitcoin, not all, but some. Uh, because it's easy. Like they know if they bash it on environmental grounds, it's going to um, trigger that that emotional response from their voters and it's going to just it score wow. points. Um, Fascinating. And, you know, and then Ted Cruz is out there who supports Bitcoin. And I think that's great. I don't like Ted Cruz. Um, I'm no fan of Ted Cruz, but I think it's great that he supports Bitcoin. But he's out there making it political by saying liberals don't like Bitcoin for this reason and that reason. And I just don't think it has to be that way. So yeah. my, okay. my ultimate aspiration is that like the next book that's written is like, you know, doesn't need to be political at all. Um, it's just that people are into Bitcoin and it's all people that are into Bitcoin. And, um, you know, my, the goal for my book is to give people a conviction so that they they feel like it's valuable and they can go out and learn more about it um, in a way that feels like safe and comfortable to them. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, uh, we're pretty much up at the end of the show. I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I, I, I think you're very brave. Uh, not that we're a conservative show, but it's like, that's not the point. I mean, we're just very direct, I guess, is one way to say it. And um, I appreciate what you're doing, Jason. I wish you the best of luck reaching that audience. Bitcoin is for everyone. It is literally for everyone. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the chance. Uh, and and I, you know, I didn't feel like I had to be brave. You guys are all very reasonable. And I'm just trying to orange pill people. So I appreciate the, the audience that you're giving me. So thank you. Um, yeah. And I, I think I put the link correctly in the notes, but if people want to check out the book, then it's also on my Twitter profile. So Fantastic. Sometime Thanks. in the future, if you want to let us know how things are going, anything we need to help promote that I'm down, you know, awesome. uh, I'm all about just spreading the word of Bitcoin. That's what we yeah. call get on the mission. I don't care what spectrum you're from. I don't care what your political beliefs are. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care about any of that stuff. If you believe in freedom, you believe in owning the fruits of your own labor. You believe in a fair system that's not unfairly advantaging a very small group of people over the rest of everybody. If you believe that you shouldn't have to get up and run on a hamster wheel, run, 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 to try to keep up with the prices running away from you. And then you're exhausted and you get off that wheel and you have to Go to bed exhausted. Don't have time to think about any of this stuff. Get up the next day. Do it again and again and again and again and again. You think that's life? If you believe that there should be a way to get out of that system, my personal belief is that's Bitcoin. This is the fairest money I think I've ever seen. I've always been on a, on a search for something like that. And here it is. All right, that's pretty much it. We're going to wrap. Thanks for hanging out, Jason. I also want to say uh, uh, a shout out to Hotep, who's still in the audience for hanging out with us today. That was a really cool discussion. Um, and all the guests who come in here and hang out and talk about what's going on. Appreciate you guys. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill, talk about what's going on. Great place to learn about Bitcoin. We obviously cover a wide variety of topics, but in one way or another, in context of Bitcoin. This is a 
podcast also. If you can't catch the live show on Twitter Spaces, you can catch it on Fountain, Spotify, Apple. Throw myself a follow of Swine Bitcoin to be notified of uh, when those drop. By the way, um, you can also just search for it, obviously, Cafe Bitcoin. You'll find it. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, sponsor of this show, my crew, Aunt Shane, that's for life. My producer, Jacob Pope, who, by the way, is freaking fantastic. He does so much heavy lifting in the background. I just need to, I, all, my job's easy. I just come on here and run my mouth. He has really the hard work. He's fantastic. I love this guy. Uh, thanks to all the speakers again. Appreciate what you guys do. Spending your personal time, taking time out of your life. These guys don't get paid for this. I don't get paid for this. But it's all about, that. literally, just so you know, Swan does not pay me to do this show. That's not my job with Swan. I do this because I believe in, in, in the mission. And that mission is bringing this bright orange future, the message of this bright orange future to the rest of the world. That's what we're here to do. I love all you guys. Everybody go out there and have a great day today. Crush it. <laughs>